The problem now is, in spite of some, some what I think, well-justified optimism on a vaccine, it is very hard for people to fully articulate and therefore to fully understand when this ends. When are we exactly are we going to get out of this physically and, and thus economically compromised position? When can you say, as, as, although it's an oversimplistic term, that the pandemic is, is, is going to be over in the United States and, and at least the rich nation? The, um, you know, the, the, the shift in mentality from it has an end date, we're going through an emergency like we had in March and April to we don't know when this is going to end, that it's very hazy, is a negative uh, for economic activity. Connect. Influence. Optimize. You're listening to The Channel Channel, a podcast for executives and others involved in the authorized sale of electronic components. Brought to you by the ECIA, the Electronic Component Industry Association. Working to promote and improve the authorized distribution channel. Welcome to The Channel Channel, ECIA's podcast channel. I'm Dale Ford. I'm chief analyst at ECIA, responsible for the market research that we conduct at ECIA. And I'm very pleased to be joined again today by Cliff Waldman. Cliff has uh, participated in a previous podcast, has been a great supporter of ECIA in previous activities. And so we're very pleased to have Cliff with us today. Welcome, Cliff. Thank you. Pleased to be here. So just for those of you who um, may not be acquainted with Cliff, he's very well known. I do want to share briefly a little bit of his uh, expertise and uh, what he brings in covering our topic today as we discuss the economy. And uh, of course, the economy of critical concern to all of us in the electronics components uh, supply chain. During his extensive career as a Washington, D.C. economist, Cliff the New World Economic CEO has been active and in demand as a public speaker on topics ranging from the U.S. and global economic outlooks to new markets, productivity, and automation. He's the host of Manufacturing Talk Radio's Manufacturing Matters with Cliff Waldman, which is now in its second year and is enjoying a growing audience, both within and outside of the U.S. He's also hosts a new show for talk radio called Cliff Notes, on the global manufacturing picture. From 2003 to 2018, Cliff served as the senior economist and chief economist of the Manufacturers Alliance for Productivity and Innovation. He spent the past 17 years writing and speaking on the global economic picture, as well as a range of issues that impact the manufacturing sector, including productivity, demographics, and emerging markets. Cliff's won three national research awards and he's currently conducting research on structural challenges in U.S. manufacturing. Finally, Cliff currently serves as chairman of the board of the National Economists Club following his term as president in 2019. So clearly highly qualified and uh, brings a great deal of expertise as we uh, cover the, uh, the current concerns surrounding the economy. So with that, just to set the picture, one of the more recent economic forecasts to be published came from the conference board. They, on September 9th, they released uh, their outlook for the U.S. economy. And they seem to be quite positive given the remaining challenges we face. 
In their base scenario, they project that U.S. GDP growth will fall by 3.8% in 2020, followed by a modest recovery of 3.2% growth in 2021. However, they also shared an upside forecast that they call the swoosh-shaped recovery. And that results in the economy only contracting 3.2% in 2020, and then a surprisingly strong 6.9% growth in 2021. So that's one example, but in general, I've noticed that economic forecasts from various firms have been adjusted upward in recent months. So Cliff, do you agree with this trend in, in a little brighter outlook? What, what factors are driving this improved sentiment? Well, the improved sentiment is just sort of a natural consequence of the fact that things have not fallen as much as we originally predicted they were, but the prediction of an event that is resulting from a mix of science and social dynamics that nobody can really predict. That being said, I will tell you I'm going against the trend right now, as of this minute. I've gotten a little more worried, not dramatically so, but I would mark my forecast down a little bit right now, and for two reasons. One, you remember, at least in the United States, back in March and April, when the health emergency was overtaking us, and we were shutting things down to try to curtail the spread of the virus, there was a mentality that it was an emergency, that it had you know, an end date, and that we were going to get through it. The problem now is, in spite of some, I think, well-justified optimism on a vaccine, it is very hard for people to fully articulate and therefore to fully understand when this ends. When are we exactly are we going to get out of this physically and, and thus economically compromised position? When can you say, as, as, although it's an oversimplistic term, that the pandemic is going to be over in the United States and at least the rich nations? The, um, the, you know, the, the, the shift in mentality from it has an end date, we're going through an emergency like we had in March and April to we don't know when this is going to end, that it's very hazy is a negative uh, for economic activity. Secondly, and this, this could, I, I hope this changes in a few days, it is a mistake on the part of Congress and the administration to withhold the stimulus that you know has been talked about for weeks now. People badly need it. We are, people are, you know, uh, food insecurity is high. Food insecurity has been a problem in the United States for longer than people realize. And if there's one good thing that may come out of this horrible period is that we may realize that there are, there are more food insecure people in the United States than we realize. But it has, food insecurity has gone greatly up. And right now, we, we very, very much need another fiscal stimulus. So the combination of the fact that, you know, the pandemic is, now in front of us to, to uh, not have a clear end date, plus the, the mistaken lack of a, of, of a stronger fiscal response that we need again. Yes, yes, we certainly had it in March again, but that we certainly need again has caused me actually to become a little more pessimistic, at least on the short-term outlook. Interesting, interesting. So as we've looked at the economy, people have used a variety of shapes in describing their expectations for the recovery, <laughs> typically from the alphabet, V, U, Pi, most recently the W, because there are concerns about this stall, it's been called in the fourth quarter. So it sounds like, from what you've just explained, you're concerned about this stall in the fourth quarter that would give us kind of a double dip. So 
you know, it appears from what you're saying that you really see that we need another stimulus package to be passed by Congress. We uh, do, yes. Okay, okay. And, you know, given that you're based in D.C., what sense do you have that the political climate will allow something to happen uh, between now and the end of the year? <laughs> well, uh, listen, listen, I, I don't have, uh, I, I don't want to give um, your listeners any sense that I have any, you know, line into the administration or line in, in, into Congress. It's, um, you know, again, as unusual a set of circumstances that we've ever seen, as I've ever seen uh, politically and economically in, in, in my lifetime, we have an uncertain, but certainly you know, once a century um, viral pandemic. We have um, uh, an election that might end up to be terribly contested. Um, it, you know, I, I, I tend to think that um, it's, it's in the interest of both parties as this election approaches to not take the chance of being seen as being the party that held up um, the disbursement of much needed funds for um, for people who quite seriously need it, for people who are, you know, but for the, the grace of certain laws and um, moratoriums on evictions are, are you know, a, a few steps away from being homeless because, you know, their incomes depended on working in restaurants or work or be, being public transportation workers or, uh, you know, working in small retail stores. Uh, we, we have to get the funds out to support them to, uh, to support, to prevent uh, small businesses from closing and many more on the verge of closing uh, than we need. So I, I, I tend to think that it's, a, I, I'm going to, you know, hold my breath and say that it's a better than even shot that we will we'll get some sort of fiscal um, relief that is very much needed here. But um, the potential for surprise in this climate is very high. Right. Right. Shifting to, to, I guess, the global view, just how much of an impact is the, what I see as the growing economic conflict between the U.S. and China, just how much is that hurting growth in the U.S.? You know, actually, I, I, you know, yes, the tensions between the U.S. and China, well, the tensions between the U.S. and China have been escalating for some time. You know, everything is seen as being harsher in the light of the pandemic. Actually, I think there I'm a little more optimistic. I don't think, strictly speaking, the tensions between the U.S. and China, at least right now, are going to have that much of an impact uh, on, on the outlook. I, I think the fact that the Chinese economy is actually finally returned to growth, clearly, weak growth, uh, to be sure, but growth is actually more of a positive, particularly for the U.S. manufacturing sector, than the, the war of words is a negative. So, you know, growth, with the U.S. and China, Chinese growth, the return to U.S., the Chinese growth trumps, you know, bad words, trumps tension. So they're a, a touch more optimistic than a lot of analysts. Okay, so you see the strong, the, should use the word strong, but the better, economic performance in China is a bit of a help to the U.S. economy then? Oh, it's very, very much so. I mean, you know, again, focusing on manufacturing, 
um, uh, you know, manufacturing depends as much on a healthy global economy, in fact, even more so than it does on a healthy domestic U.S. economy. And it's impossible to have a healthy uh, resurgence of global growth. Now, that's far away, but to have a healthy uh, global economy without China returning to growth. So the return to growth for the Chinese economy is not a sufficient step, but it's a necessary step for the return of global growth, which the U.S. manufacturing sector and thus the U.S. economy very much depends on for it getting back on its feet. Talking about the manufacturing economy, most people are forecasting the overall U.S. or global economy. How closely is the manufacturing economy tracking with the overall U.S. economy? It's doing what it usually does. Throughout the decades, manufacturing output growth is always more volatile than U.S. GDP growth. When things are up, U.S. manufacturing growth is always stronger than U.S. GDP growth. When it's down, when it's contracting, when times are tough, U.S. manufacturing growth always contracts more than GDP growth, just because of the, the very bulky nature of what we make and, and what we do. Now, in this very odd period, actually, it's been tracking it fairly well, at least in a, you don't have to worry about, you know, number to numbers matchup, but at least in a qualitative sense, you can tell the same story about the manufacturing sector as, as you can about the overall economy. We had what can only be described as a crash in March and April, as we did with the U.S. economy, both the U.S. economy and the U.S. manufacturing sector started to see some much improved performance. Going into May, we were relieved by what was going on. But now, right now, both for manufacturing and for the economy, things are, are getting dicier. I, I, things are looking slower. That you know, August uh, release of the Federal Reserve's industrial production report was not particularly a happy one for U.S. manufacturing. Yes, it moved forward, but uh, at a 1% pace in, um, in August, much below the nearly 4% uh, pace in July and the more than 7% pace in June. Again, telling the same story as the, and, and the economy. And remarkably, this morning, we had retail sales, a critical variable for return to growth for, uh, of the U.S. economy. But retail sales were, were slower, much slower than, you know, again, positive, but slower than expected. So at least in a qualitative tell-the-story sense, the manufacturing sector is pretty much tracking the same story as the U.S. economy as a whole is. Now, looking at the manufacturing, there's been strong emphasis on tracking the PMI index like ISM and IHS market, and they even have a specific index for manufacturing. Now, the latest figures, good news, they've jumped back above 50, which is an indication of an improved production uh, level. But what else can we learn from the latest PMI research? Well, it's interesting that you're asking the question because Yesterday, as I was preparing my notes and my usual social media comments on, on manufacturing data, you look at that 1%, that big fall off in growth of uh, U.S. manufacturing from June and July into August, and you look at the August PMI data, the August PMI data were very strong, particularly with regards to new orders and the backlog of orders, very strong, really contradicting the, the, the big slowing that was showed in the, um, the industrial production report from the Federal Reserve. Now, it is often the case that um, the ISM numbers, the PMI numbers, will overstate the strength in manufacturing. 
relative to the actual measure of output growth that you get from the Federal Reserve. That has happened before, but this was very stark. You have to almost explain what's going on here. They were distinctly different for August. And my best guess, my best analysis of what's going on is that you have to remember that the PMI data from uh, ISM, which are generally important data, are come from a survey. They result from a survey. And, you know, respondents to the survey are asked to, you know, sort of describe questions about demand, supply chain, business conditions in their, um, in their various um, industry subsectors. Given the highly unusual circumstances of being of, of you know supply chain health and general demand being tethered to the um, the ups and downs of a poorly understood virus, you can forgive these respondents for having a somewhat cloudy view of what's happening right now and what will happen a month or two from now in their industry subsectors. It may be a little harder for them to answer the question from the um, ISM survey that results in the PMI um, data being um, produced. So I, I think that kind of confusion is why right now you have to take survey data with just a bit of a grain of salt. And as an analyst, I'm more biased to add the actual measures that come again on, on manufacturing growth that come again from the Federal Reserve. Interesting. So. I'm going to come back to that topic of the measures in a little bit, but before we go to that, um, uh, small businesses. Right. There's been a lot of discussion about the challenges of small businesses. Sadly, we see increasing reports of, of businesses that won't ever open again. Now, Correct. NFIB, they're a champion for small businesses in the U.S., and they've published recent research that shows both challenges that are being reported to them in their surveys and some degree some improved optimism for improved optimism for small business now the national association of manufacturers has noted that the number of manufacturing companies in the u.s is dominated by small businesses in terms of just numbers right. of companies how do you from what you've seen how do you think the small manufacturing businesses in the u.s are weathering this pandemic compared to the overall small business climate that we have in the U.S.? Uh, I, the NFIB data are something that I have, you know, career experience working with. I work for NFIB, and their small business economic trends data go up to the early 1970s, and they have both monthly and quarterly data. They are seasonally adjusted. They have created almost their own small statistical agency around small business data. So. While I, you know, I tend to sort of look with a bit of a jaundiced eye on private trade group data, this is 40 years of building a serious data infrastructure on small businesses. And anytime I want small business data, I do look at these data, so I'm confident in them. Now, what, what you look at, again, they, they ask questions about actual activity, for example, actual employment changes up or down, actual capital spending expenditures up or down, and expectations. And just because of the nature of things right now, I'm going to just give a little bit of a grain of salt to sort of interpreting the expectation data. You can't blame respondents for be, uh, being a little cloudy on where things are going. Generally speaking, you look at the overall path through the pandemic up till now of 
the total small business community and the manufacturing small business community, but they have, have tended to more or less track with each other. They had a big fall. They had a big rise. I think just because small businesses, just because, you know, the law of numbers, and, you know, smaller changes with small businesses are going to give you higher changes in, in these indices. But again, I know the optimism index has come back rather nicely, but I, I'm going to withhold any judgment on that just until we start to see real changes in employment, real changes in capital spending. And we all have to be a little bit careful with that. So, you know, the, the small manufacturers have, have had, got hit as much generally qualitatively in February through early May and rebounded as much as the general small business community did after that. But I think there's more challenges for both the general small business community and the manufacturing small business community than these data are implying right now. Interesting, interesting. Okay, good. Helpful to have that insight. You've got some insider knowledge, so to speak. Not in an illegal sense, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Looking at how this pandemic's been managed across the U.S., quarantine requirements, business reopening requirements, that's all being managed on a state-by-state -state basis with varying levels of renewed economic activity in each state. What regions of the country, from your view, seem to be doing better with the economic recovery? Well, again, we don't have that much data. There's, there's just, I mean, remember, there's really a six-month story. So we, we don't have enough data to make that judgment. But what we've seen, generally speaking, uh, and, and what, we, what we know, there, thankfully, there have been very, you know, pandemics of this size and scope have been very rare. I mean, really, you have to go back to 1918, 102 years. But what we know from history is that when, you, when you're in a situation, and frankly, from just logic, when you're in a situation like this, controlling the virus means doing better economically. So, I mean, New York had a, uh, you know, was, was terribly inhibited in, um, in terms of economic activity, but it really looks like it's coming back now because they controlled the virus. So, you know, it, it's not like I can make a declaration that, um, you know, one state is doing better than the other, because remember, this has been a rolling story. It rolled out of the Northeast. New York has a positivity rate, which is, a, I think, a good measure of um, viral spread of about 1% and even sub 1%. And then it rolled into the um, Southern and Western states. And now with there's concerns about rising in the Midwest states. And really, the states that have controlled the virus the best are probably seeing you know, the best prospect for long-range recovery. Not, uh, not better performance right now, but long-range recovery. So, you know, you expect Vermont and Maine and Rhode Island, which have done a very good job of controlling the virus. They're, they're probably going to see their economy snap back first. You know you're being in California that there are enormous challenges there. Even as the recovery progresses in 2021, I would expect California to lag. I think New York is a question mark. If they can keep their positivity rate in the 1% range, I think people might be very surprised how fast New York rebounds. And Florida, Arizona, I, I, I think, you know, the, the summer surge hurts business and consumer confidence more than people realize. So they're going to lag, too, as we go into 2021 and hopefully start to talk 
about a real long-range recovery for the whole United States economy, which we are nowhere near right now. Oh, that's unfortunate to hear. Well, I guess to pile on, maybe we jump over to the, across the pond here for a minute and look at Brexit. Now, the concerns about Brexit have been pushed to the background with all the other concerns we've been managing, but it popped back into the headlines recently as the UK and the EU yes. continue their negotiations. We've got claims of potential international violations by the UK with their, the new law that uh, the, the prime minister wants to pass. What should we know about the status of Brexit and how it could still impact us here in the US? Thinking in terms of supply chain, Brexit, it's frankly a little confusing to me why they're not shelving this right now. The UK is struggling mightily with COVID. It had uh, one of the deepest downturns in the second quarter of this year of any country in the, uh, I mean, it's not a European country anymore, but any country in that geographic area. And this seems a strange time right now to have this kind of argument, but given that it's, it's there and that we could be talking about violations of international law and that you know, it, first of all, it generally reflects the fact that even with the pandemic, globally speaking, trade tensions are with us. Trade tensions are going to be, a, a, it tells me that coming out of the pandemic, trade tensions between the U.S. and China, between the U.K. and everybody else in that region is going to be a, a feature of economic life as it was coming into the pandemic. Now, in some cases, that'll be worse than others. It, it, may, it may or may not have the same uh, degree of economic impact in, in every region. But, I mean, really, for manufacturing right now, it adds to supply chain challenges. COVID, you know, in, in the manufacturing arena is a terrible problem for supply chain disruption. We don't know, I mean, and that's, the, you know, the European uh, supply chains are critical for U.S. manufacturers, and right now, COVID is a complete uncertainty with disruptions, and now they're they're adding this Brexit confrontation to the possibility of supply chain disruptions, and I think it's it's a shame because to the extent that a, a slowly slowly reviving Chinese economy is going to be a plus for overall U.S. manufacturing performance. This, if it really goes to the extreme that, you know, it sort of looks like it, there's this confrontation between the UK and the EU and between the UK and the US, by the way, because the US is saying if this happens, well, there's no way we're going to get a free trade agreement. And so it's now a UK US fight. This European Brexit confrontation may negate for US manufacturing some of the benefits we're going to get from you know, a slowly reviving Chinese economy. So it's very unfortunate, it's poorly timed, and I don't actually understand not shelving the argument right now when, when the world is just struggling to get past all the implications of this pandemic. Well, good points, good points. Coming back to a point you'd raised earlier about uh, indices and, and the various indicators that you see. So, if you're advising a manufacturer, what economic indicators, metrics, should they be watching most closely as they manage their business? Now, it, it somewhat depends on the, um, the industry, but generally speaking, one of the interesting things about manufacturing is that it tracks GDP. GDP is a 
very important measure for manufacturing because the key components of GDP, namely business investment and exports, are key sources of demand for U.S. manufacturing. I mean, the, for the domestic U.S. manufacturing base, we are we have you know a good strength in, in the creation of uh, business equipment. So we should be watching business investment. Now, business investment has been sluggish for some time. But is business investment at least going to come back from the pandemic-induced crash? If you start to see the white of the eyes, if you will, a positive business investment, that's a good, good sign. I would watch three things in the global economy. Remember, the, that global economy is the, even more important than the domestic economy for the health of U.S. manufacturers. One, the resumption of Chinese growth, slow as it is right now, going to continue and going to strengthen. Two, is Brexit story going to end up in an explosion that is going to create more disruptions in critical supply chains than we even thought? And three, another thing that um, U.S. manufacturers, even at this tough time, somewhat have going for them in the international arena is the fact that the dollar has, uh, it has fallen. It's flailing around lately. But between April and August, the broadest measure of the nominal dollar fell by 5%. That's a nice thing for U.S. manufacturers. The dollar had a big spike in 2014, 2015, and a high uncompetitive dollar has been a big headache for U.S. manufacturers ever since. So a little bit of a relief on the dollar, and the dollar coming down has been a good thing. It makes U.S. produced goods more competitive in non-U.S. markets. So that's the third thing I would watch. So I'm telling them to watch business investment in the United States. I'm telling them to watch Chinese growth. It's going to stay positive. It's going to get stronger. I'm telling them to watch the Brexit situation. And I'm telling them to watch the dollar. Is it going to stay down? Is it going to go up? Is it going to go down further? Those are the key metrics that I think I would tell any manufacturer in the United States to pay attention to right now. Okay, okay. So diving down a little bit more specifically into electronics components in our industry, the good news is that revenues in 2020 have outperformed what anybody expected as we began the crisis this year. Why do you think that this sector of the economy has been much more resilient in the face of pandemic and all these challenges? I think it's two things. One, remember, and I am loath to use this language of talking about who has quote unquote benefited from the pandemic. It has been an, it has been as been as big a tragedy as any of us have ever seen in our lifetimes. But it has increased this work from home theme in the marketplace, which means that elect and that that means um, that means two things. The work from home theme, plus the fact that housing sales have been strong, really supports electronics. All of a sudden, your home is more than just a home. It's a place where, you know, you use machinery and electronics to interact with work colleagues, to interact with friends, to interact with family. So the demand and the need for various kinds of electronics and even just for entertainment, uh, you know, because it's been hard to get out of the house or impossible to go on vacation. Electronics of various kinds have sort of salvaged our sanity a little bit in addition to the need that we have for them, both for work, family, and other kinds of interactions. Oh, yeah, that's a great, great uh, observation uh, from that perspective. Um, 
maybe in the time we have left, we can squeeze in one last question. You know, you mentioned about uh, business investment in the U.S., and it, it would be assumed right. that uh, technology development could be delayed this year with you know limited budgets and lower investments in R&D potentially. But I recently saw a report claiming that progress in technology development has actually accelerated during the pandemic. Uh, what, what have you seen? How much progress in terms of technology development, uh, how much of that has been harmed versus helped during the pandemic? Well, uh, technology deployment is, is a big, broad um, uh, phenomenon and it would meet, take different forms in a, a, a wide range of industries. Uh, but let's rem um, you have, you know, look at the stock market. The stock market has good information. It's telling us things. And the high flyers have been all the, you know, the tech stocks because, you know, I, I, sometimes I think they jump the gun with telling us that we're in new eras. But this era is that businesses are telling us, oh, there's, you know, there's work from home or not only work from home, but there's work from anywhere stature of, of, of business um, operation is, is a new thing. We're in a new era. So in, in, in order to facilitate that and to, to capitalize on its benefits, you have to deploy technology in ways that maybe you haven't done before. Or, uh, you know, in, in, in the manufacturing sector, uh, you know, factories have particularly difficult, um, uh, you know, issues to contend with because obviously people who work in the factory and produce things can't work at home. So they've had to use technology to allow, you know, uh, maximum productivity with uh, minimum contact between members of a team. And it's particularly in a lean environment, that's tough. So really technology deployment has been happening because of both the needs and the, the, the possible long-term benefits of, of, of a different working arrangement that we think is coming out of the pandemic. I think, I, I think frankly, it's jumping the gun. I think it remains to be seen that once, you know, the pandemic um, comes to a, a, at least a reasonable close, presumably with a vaccine in, in the United States and the rich countries, whether or not we'll really go back to the old way and commuting and then all that. So I, I'm holding my judgment on that, but just because there's been this dramatic sense of a new way of working, in order to facilitate it, you need uh, you know different kinds of technology deployment. You know, maybe just to put an exclamation point on on what you're saying there, we had uh, the the IPO for Snowflake today that uh, yes. uh, the pricing doubled after uh, it went public and uh, kind of a record setting. Um, valuation for Snowflake, uh, which is a, a data warehousing company. So another tech company, basically, uh, really uh, in, in a very tough environment, uh, doing extremely well. But uh, with low interest rates, they're also saying that dollars are chasing any kind of a good growth opportunities they can find out there. Right. Exactly. And so so tech tech has been uh you know uh again just because of the um the the change in theme that at least for now the pandemic has has brought forth i mean you know this was happening to some extent telecommuting is you know for certain industries is is not a new concept and we saw it would accelerate anyway but with the pandemic dramatically accelerating you know shifts that were happening anyway and that to some extent depend on technology 
to fully capitalize on. It's not surprising to see the snowflake, and it's not surprising to see, you know, the uh, remarkable valuations put on Amazon and Apple, um, Tesla, and, and all that. So, you know, technology, if, if the new world is, uh, is going to succeed, and if indeed we really have moved into a new world, um, technology is going to have to be the way, the way it succeeds. Well, we've reached the end of our time. I, again, want to extend my sincere personal thanks to you, Cliff, for taking time to visit with me today to share your knowledge and insights uh, with all of us. And I'd encourage our audience to take advantage of the other uh, platforms where you can continue to hear from Cliff on his Manufacturing Matters with Cliff Waldman and on his uh, Cliff Notes on the Global Manufacturing Picture. I'm sure those will be uh, great investments of your time as well. So thank you, Cliff. Thank you very much.